Last week, uh, we began a short series. If you, if you were here, you remember we began to walk through an art exhibit. Uh, it was called the Gallery of Grace. And we looked at the first portrait, and if you remember, uh, it was entitled Daughter. And if you didn't go to the art exhibit with us last week, you, good news is you can go online and uh, go to the exhibit. Um, but as we go this morning, we're going to look at a different portrait the scriptures paint for us. You're going to find it in Mark chapter 5. I'd like to read it. Let's look with amazement at the portrait painted for us of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Beginning in verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue, officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kuom, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. This is a, a remarkable account. And if you remember, if you were here last week, it, verse 21 actually began with this account of this guy. This official comes to him and, uh, and, and some of his friends and says, daughter's dying. And then if you remember, Jesus goes on their way, and the zoom lens is on a, a woman, desperate woman. And we see a portrait being painted. But now, we're back to the original situation, or problem, if you may. Years ago, I don't recommend this, I don't know if I, I when I was a child, a kid, um, we used to play doorbell ditch. Guilty. Kids, don't recommend it. Sorry, but it was fun, okay? There's confession. Um, and so we'd wait till it was dark, and you, know, you run up, and if you've never done it, um, you've missed out on that, uh, you ring the doorbell and just flat out run. Hide, okay? And so we were doing that, and, and I was actually younger. My brother saying, don't, Matt. Dad said, don't do this. Don't get in trouble. And, but my cousin was there, and he was pretty influential in my life. And I said, okay, let's do it. And so we, we rang a couple doorbells, and all of a sudden we're kind of going through the dark, and there's all of a sudden a police presence. Now that doesn't instill hope in us, and so we're like, we got to get back to our tent. We were camping in the backyard, and so I'm following my cousin as fast as I can. The problem is it's pitch black out. I can't see where I'm going, so I'm just following my cousin, and I hear in the distance, ooh, I didn't know what it was. So I'm still following him like a fool, and right into a fence, Wham! Go over the top of it and uh, get up. But I got to get to the tent. I got to get safe. And, um, and we finally made it. And, of course, got disciplined as I should have. Um, but, you know, there's a fear of safety when we get in 
dark places and dark times in our life, we're kind of all like I was that night. Blindfolded, children, it seems, groping in the dark. We're listening for a familiar voice. We're looking for surroundings that are familiar and, and friendly. And if you think about it, with one difference, our surroundings can seemingly become more hostile and even more fatal. My worst fear that night was really a bruised shin. Our worst fears are more threatening, aren't they? Loneliness, death, bad doctor's report. And try as we might to avoid all those obstacles, chances are we will be hurt and will feel threatened. Just as Jarius. He was a man who was trying to walk as straight as he could in this account. But Jarius' path all of a sudden ran straight, not into a fence, but to a dark cave, and he didn't want to enter it alone. Because we don't see the future, we're often blinded to it, obviously. And because we can't see it, we're afraid of it. And it's often amplified when we face loss. Let's look at this portrait. First of all, we need to look at the background. As I talked about before, we're, we're studying observationally. It's a, it's a way to study scripture. And we're told in verse 21 through 24, Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to our side. There's a great multitude. They're pressing against him. Verse 22, and one of the synagogue officials, we'll stop there. So what's the synagogue? We don't use that word here, at least in our culture. It was the center of religious activity. But it wasn't just the center of religious activity. It was a place they actually socialized. It was a place, center of education, leadership training as well. It was a very significant place. And we're told that there's a certain synagogue official. This is one who belongs to a class of, a, of synagogue rulers. We would say he's got some rank. He's got some position. He's got some authority. But why mention synagogue official? Why not simply mention just a man? You ever wonder about this sometimes? Why is that in there? Why do we need to know that? Two reasons. One, his rank, all his security, it couldn't help him here. And also, because he does something very uncharacteristic of a man in his position, he begs. He's not used to begging. He's maybe used to people coming to him, asking for direction, but he does something different. He begs. It's not a well-groomed, dressed, clear-sighted, black frock civic leader coming to Jesus, but he's a blind man seeking the ability to see. He's looking for a gift. And we're told in the account, he implores earnestly. If you look at Verse 23, and, and he treated him earnestly. NIV says he implored him earnestly. It means he implored him over again and again and again. He's begging Jesus to heal his daughter. But we all know that he'd trade all that he has, all the rank, all the privilege, all the money, to have his daughter live. Who wouldn't? And maybe you've gone through that, of losing a daughter or... We've gone through almost losing a child at birth, and, and some of those prayers take on a little different measure. They're, they're not as clean and 
and well-worded, they're, they're more desperate. They're begging. And we see a man begging. He doesn't barter. He doesn't say, Jesus, if you do this favor for me, I know you're getting some heat from some of these religious people. If you do this favor for me, I'll, I'll put a word in for you, see if they'll back off a little. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make excuses. He said, I'm usually not this desperate, Jesus, but I got a little problem. We, we don't see that. He begs. Please, my daughter's dying. And you see the desperation. Now, when we look at this account in Jesus and his healing, understand something. This isn't a pattern we're supposed to be drawn to. It's a person. Jesus Christ. And if you miss the person in this, you've missed the portrait. Because we're supposed to see Jesus in this. What are the characters? It's something we always need to ask. We know we got Jairus and his wife. We read about them, obviously, early on, and we read about them throughout this account, at least. And, and I thought about their predicament as parents, and you guys can relate if you got children. There's times in our life when everything we have to offer is nothing compared to what we're asking. All we have is nothing. We're asking for a miracle from heaven. We're asking for God to do something that we got nothing to contribute to. And that's where this man and woman are. We read in verse 35 that there's some messengers from Jairus' house. You look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, who's they? To these messengers. Could be servants. And they come to him and say, might as well give it up. Don't bother Jesus. She's gone. I, I couldn't help but stop and say, you ever pray about something and it seems like it, there's a point in where it's like, why pray anymore? It's helpless. You ever been there? Jairus has. And you can relate to that. There's a moment where you maybe want to stop praying. Maybe you're praying for a wayward son for 30 years. You're like, it's hopeless. Don't stop. Don't stop. Keep praying. God could want to break in in that 31st year. We don't know. But keep praying. And so they tell him to kind of stop. There's nothing you can do. Maybe you've had to deliver bad news and you know how hard that can be. Now verse 38 is something that we might be tempted to fly by. Jesus overhears what's being spoken and we're going to revisit this in a second. He says to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. So the implication is he's afraid. He's been afraid. Challenges only believe. And he allowed no one, verse 37, to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Kind of get a picture of the scene. These mourners are professional mourners. They, they would embellish funeral rites with skillfully contrived, um, I guess you could say, eulogies. And really, it was often an office of these mourners they pass on to their children. So if there was somebody dying, a tragedy, these mourners would kind of, in a sense, come in official capacity, not necessarily because they knew the person. And so they're mourning, and, and, and commotion is the word Jesus used, um, and he comes in. There's a sense of an artificial, I guess, meaning in this, their ancient customs. He specifically takes in the characters Peter, James, and John. They're mentioned. Their names are really all we hear about 
in this. We have this young girl. Now, is there a, I'm not going to embarrass you, I just, I just need you to slip, is there a 12-year-old in the house? Just get it up there. Help us out. Any 12? Good job. Okay. There's a young girl his age. Okay. Helps to visualize. Okay. So this daughter has been with mom and dad for a while. 12 years. They've watched her grow, watched her learn to crawl, watched her teeth come in. I mean, all those things we do with children and love it and remember. They watched it. Their 12-year-old daughter. Jesus clearly is the focus of this account. And so we have these various characters that kind of illuminate these truths for us. Verse 36, we have all this stuff going on, people bringing news to Jesus. We're told he overhearing what was being spoken. That word overhearing also has this idea, I'm not exactly sure what was being meant here, but it also has this idea of ignoring them. He overheard it and ignored them. In other words, he didn't listen to what they had to say. He was on a whole different agenda. He had a whole different plan. And think about that. I always thought it, there's never a time Jesus gave in to those who said quit. There's never a time Jesus was influenced by criticism. He doesn't hear either. Jesus reveals here a critical principle for seeing the unseen. Ignore what people say. Ignore voices that say it's too late to start over again. Disregard those who say you'll never amount to anything. And as one author said, faith sometimes begins by stuffing your ears with cotton. <laughs> well put. In the end of verse 36, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. It's used in the absolute sense when he says only believe here. It means trust me and keep on trusting me. This isn't a one-time decision. It's a day by day. There's going to become times in our life that we need to keep trusting. And everything in us doesn't want to. And we lay it down again. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. You can trust me, Jesus says. Don't be afraid any longer. It seems there had been a, a, a time frame, perhaps even before this, we're not sure, where this particular official wrestled with fear. And maybe it's just highlighted in this account. We're not sure. But we've asked it, why should I trust you, God? We've asked it in those dark moments, running through life. And we've asked it in two different ways, if you're like me. Can I trust God? Or another way, can I trust God? They're two different ways to look at it, aren't they? One is we're not concerned. We're not too, uh, I guess, convinced God's going to pull it off. The other one is, I'm not sure I can pull it off. I don't know if I can trust him. I'm having a difficult time. Each needs to be acknowledged. But God has always asked his people to trust him. There will always be stuff outside of our control. It's trust that pleases God. And so always when we get to these accounts, I think it's healthy to ask, is there an area of my life, God, you're asking me to trust you in? Jesus is asked to exhibit such a faith and radical trust in the ability of Jesus to confront this crisis, this situation with the power of God. That's what he's asking Jairus, and he asks us. Can you have a faith and a radical trust in the ability of Jesus to confront your crisis, your circumstances, your situations with the power of God? Because perfect, complete trust leads to perfect, complete peace. That's a promise we have in Scripture. 
to believe that his child would live even as he stood in the presence of death. Now that's a tall order. To believe God was in control and that Jesus would do what Jesus thought was best. Now I, th- I, I think sometimes in terms of personal way of approaching things, look at verse 39 and try to enter into this. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? Imagine you're at a funeral. And you walk in to the mourners and you say that to them. What's going on here? Trust God. Doesn't that come off sounding like very insensitive? Right? I mean, doesn't it sound like that's just not a really kind thing to do? That's what Jesus did. I'm not recommending that we do this. I'm just saying he could because there was something different about Jesus. We continue to learn what that is. So we ask a question, what right does Jesus have to say these words? Maybe some of them thought that. What right does he have? From a human standpoint, it almost considers like an insult. As a child, your children trust you. As a young child, they sometimes will jump off a fence into your arms or jump off a chair. And in that moment, we learn something about your children. They trust you. But what does that look like? They trust your strength. They're not going to jump if they don't think you'll catch them. They trust your heart, that you actually care enough to catch them. And they trust your availability that as they jump, you're not going to turn and walk away. In other words, there's complete trust. And isn't that true in a relationship with God? God, we trust your heart that you love us and care enough for us that I can trust you. And that I trust your strength, that you have a power to impact and influence this circumstances in this situation. You have ultimate authority and power. And aren't we indeed trusting his availability that he's actually hearing us? He's hearing, hearing us cry out to him? This is complete trust. This is radical trust. And the one who speaks the words to this daughter is also the bridge between life and death. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't trust authority. So sometimes we let that mindset creep into our view of God. But we can't compare human authority with God's authority. His authority is ultimate. And behind his authority is absolute power to effect change. What is God asking you to trust him with? What's he asking you to lay at his feet? It's a very important question. Verse 37 says he allowed no one to come in but these three disciples. Perhaps in anticipation of the resurrection, perhaps. Perhaps in anticipation of the transfiguration when they get a revelation of God's glory. We're not entirely sure why. But he allowed no one but these persons to see it. Knowing God intimately results in trusting him completely. And these guys got an up-close look. Verse 38 and 39, we see in 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official. He beheld a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. So you can imagine all this commotion going on. In Jesus' words, in spite of the girl's real death, she's not been delivered over to the realm of death with all its consequences, but she is dead. And Christ's reference to death as sleep was intended to suggest that her condition was temporary that he was going to bring her back to life. I don't know about you when I read verse 41, 
I find it interesting for a lot of reasons. Is and taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kom, which translated little girl, I say to you, arise. It's actually spoken in what would have been her native tongue. It literally means little lamb. Isn't that kind of isn't that precious uh, to speak that way to her? And his words are life. <laughs> she comes back to life. That's why we must reach for them. And he calls her in such an intimate way. And immediately, verse 42 says, the girl rose and began to walk. Now, doesn't that seem odd to you? Why? Because dead people don't get up and eat. That's why. It should seem odd to you. It should seem miraculous to you because it is. In verse 42, immediately, we see the authority of power over death. Now, I want you to note the authority of Jesus throughout this portrait. Verse 37, he allowed no one. Verse 36, he says, don't be afraid any longer. Verse 40, he puts them out. Verse 43, he gave them strict orders. Verse 41, I say to you, get up. And then don't tell anyone. I mean, that's, he's taken complete control over this situation. It's his ultimate authority. And he performs a miracle. I think one of the reasons he took the five is he just wanted this couple. He had a heart for this couple and their loss. And he gave the daughter back to them. He has a heart of compassion, Jesus does. And he models it over and over and over. He poured out mercy on his parents. He chose to intervene in their situation and their blindness as they groped through the darkness with the loss of their daughter. And he poured out something on them. It's called grace. He's still a God of grace. He still meets us in our moments, in our fears, in our confusion, in our circumstances, and he intervenes. Sometimes it's in a miraculous way like this, and sometimes it's in other unique ways with a deep-seated peace or clarity or a lot of different ways, but it's called grace. Now, there's a lot we can learn from this portrait. I just want to highlight three things. One is, although we're blinded to the future, please be reminded he's not. God is not blinded to the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what is happening even better than us. So we can trust him with our future. Another truth highlighting out of here is God's ultimate authority qualifies our perfect trust. His ultimate authority over all things, he's completely sovereign, qualifies him for our perfect trust. So I ask you again, what do you need to trust him with? What is God calling you this morning to let go of and say, I got this. I'm going to work this out in my plan for my glory. I'm just calling you to let it go. Lay it at my feet, and I'm going to act and intervene with that which is keeping with his power and his authority. And number three, when we see death, we see disaster. But not Jesus. When he sees death, he sees deliverance. Because one day there'll be no more death. Scripture tells us the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And that same voice that awoke that little girl, called her from death, that same voice will speak again. Earth and the sea will give up their dead, we're told. There will be no more death. Jesus made sure of that. You can trust him. You can trust him today. You can trust him for all of eternity. 
Where do we learn it? We learn it in the gallery of grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this text. I almost feel guilty going through it at the speed we did. There's so much more there that we could learn and grasp and continue to stand in awe of. We thank you for what you did highlight this morning. We needed to hear it. And Lord, i got to believe with a crowd this size that you are calling all of us for sure, and maybe some specifically, to surrender and to trust you with their life, with their circumstances, maybe with their children, spouse, their future. And Lord, I pray if anyone is in that situation, in that boat, I pray you'd pry their hands away from that which they're clinging to that's not you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd cultivate in all of us a deep and abiding trust in you. In those moments, God, when we're tempted to once again pick up that which we've laid down before you, Lord, when we're tempted to try to take over what you're working in, remind us of this portrait. Help us to hear deep in our spirit the words, do not be afraid any longer, but trust you and believe. Please lay that in our mind and in our hearts. And we know none of this is possible in our strength and certainly not in our wisdom, but only in your power, Jesus. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.